Well, I liked, uh, you know, some of the, the lyrics that we sang tonight in the, in the worship, you know, that talked about the arms of God enfolding us, the Father embracing us with his love. And I think that's a, a good image to have. Uh, Dallas Willard, in his book, The Renovation of the Heart, says that we live in a culture of images. Very powerful images convey things to us. And as Christians, we need to have powerful images in our own life that convey spiritual truth to us. Uh, for example, the movie The Passion of the Christ has a very powerful image that it uh, projects in the movie when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And it's a powerful image that speaks a message into the hearts of people who see it. And that is one of the good images that we should have in our Christian life. And another image I think that is powerful is to have an image of God being a father who reaches down from heaven with his arms of love and embraces us. We talked about that the first night, that phileo love that he had for Jesus, where he would demonstrate his affection and embrace him. And we saw this morning that in, in our lives as children, that's what we wanted most from our dads, is for him to embrace us and tell us he loved us. And where that was missing in our life, God the Father comes to be that father that we never had. And so this is a powerful image. And, you know, I've chosen that image uh, for the cover of my book. A friend of mine's an artist, and he painted this picture of this father embracing the little boy. And I always loved this painting, so I put it on the cover of my book, The Father Loves You, because it has that image on it. There's another book that is one of my favorites by Henry Nouwen. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And he chose, as the image to have on that cover, Rembrandt's uh, painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And we have this uh, book out on the table, and there's only a handful left, but I highly recommend this book. And you can see that uh, we have this, this image to project tonight, and we're going to leave it up on the screen while I'm speaking, because... It is an image that, that speaks powerfully to us of the Father's love for us. And I believe that, you know, from time to time, I'm going to refer to it in my message. And uh, as you look at it, it just conveys this, this message to your heart, sometimes even bypassing your head, going right to your heart of how the Father loves you. And tonight we want to talk about the return of the prodigal son. And I'd like to share with you a little story uh, I believe that our lives are made up of lots of little stories. And I, really, I like big stories, too. I like stories when big things happened in my Christian experience. I can remember once when I got to speak uh, at a conference in Frankfurt, Germany, and there was 8,500 people there in the stadium. You know, John turned the mic over to me, and that was like a big story. You know, a big moment. 
But I find that my life is really made up of lots of little moments, uh, little stories. And that's where I live most of the time. And learning how to find that embrace in the little moments of life, in the middle of your little stories, is part of what the Father's love is all about. I shared with you the experience that I had in 1985 when the Father really spoke to me for the first time, Eddie, you are my son, I love you, and you can never fail in my sight. And that was a pretty massive inbreaking of love in my life. And the love that I received became the anointing of my life for ministry. That's sort of what happens in our life. And that's part of the movement of tonight. The love that we receive from the Father is the love that we're going to give away to others who need the Father's love. Well, I just began to give it away. And as a result, uh, that particular ministry grew. And in 1998, as I was looking into the year of 1999, uh, it was like, like the biggest year that I've ever had was on the calendar. Major conferences in, in, in almost every continent. And I was just on the verge of, you know, taking the Father's love out in an entirely do, new dimension. But I began to lose weight in January of 1999, and three months later I was diagnosed with leukemia. And basically, I spent 1999 fighting for my life. And believe it or not, I think I lost about almost 40 pounds from what I weigh now. And it was a pretty serious situation. And then I recovered in the year 2000. And what happened to me <laughs> during that time was like a journey from bigness to smallness. Every conference was canceled. I wasn't able to go in my office for 10 months. The church suffered. And during that time, just prior to that, we had planted a, a sort of a, another church, a, a sister church across the valley from where I lived. And during that time that I was ill and couldn't pastor the church, our church sort of suffered and the other church grew. And it just grew more and more and more. And so by the end of uh, the period of time of recovery, there I was in smallness. No conferences. Church had dwindled. The church we planted was just growing rapidly. And I remember going to a pastor's meeting of all the local vineyard pastors. It was held at this other church that we had planted. And uh, the pastor of this church who was you know, like my protege, he gave a message on all the things that he was doing in his church to uh, make it grow. And he's, you know, a real go-getter, and he had like 20 major things that were going on in that church, and they were all wonderful. And the church was just accelerating. And I can remember I sat there in my smallness, and it began to touch at my insecurities again. And I can remember that I, I went to my office and I got out my yellow legal pad and I started writing down things that he said. And I said, I need to sort of marshal my energy and I need to get back to work. I need to grow this thing. And I can remember that I was in my office and I got you know, to about the third page and I got so exhausted that I just put my head down on, the t on my desk, fell asleep, 
I woke up sort of groggy with a headache and said, I think I'll go home now. So I go home, and all the way home I'm thinking about what a failure I've become. And I'm, and I'm too tired to do anything about it. And so I was at a, a, a point of smallness, a point of weakness, a point of vulnerability. And I, and I was at a moment where I was going to need to find the Father. But that isn't where I went first. When I got home, I did something that uh, I guess we all do. In my moment of needing affirmation to feel better about myself, I went to the mailbox. You know, there was the mailbox, and I said, maybe there's a check in the mail. Maybe there's an invitation to a big conference in the mail, something that will make me feel good. And, you know, I, I don't know what that, if, that's, if it's like that for you, but for, for many years, I always felt like there was some magic in the mailbox. You know, I, I like to go through the mail because maybe there will be a check in the mail. Maybe there will be something that makes me feel good about myself. So in that moment, I took all the mail in the house looking for affirmation. And, you know, it's probably not, it doesn't have the same impact today because of email. But I find myself at times doing the same thing with email. You know, I can't wait to get into my email if I'm sort of insecure in the morning because who knows what wonderful news might come to you. Then I always pray for mercy that bad news won't come to me. But so anyways, I take the mail and I spread it out on the, the kitchen table in this state. And you know, the, I'm sort of going through the mail, and the first thing that catches my eye and the first thing I pull out of it is Victoria's Secret. And I'm, I'm saying, where'd that come from? <laughs> but it was funny. In that moment, I looked at that Victoria's Secret catalog. How many of you have ever seen a Victoria's Secret catalog? So you, you know, you can, you can, not everyone's, you know, will close their eyes and you can raise your hand if you've ever seen one. But I remember when I picked that up in, in my state of need, and I, as I looked at that cover, I just sort of felt sort of the, a warm rush of good feeling. It sort of touched me, and I realized if I open that up, it's only going to get better. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel some warmth. I'm going to feel some something in it that's going to make me feel better about myself right now. But I... I held it for a moment, and it, it had a, it's like magnetic power. And then all of a sudden, I said to myself, I've been there, and I've done that, and that is not going to satisfy my need. And I put it down. So then I started going through the mail. And then the next thing I find is this, a particular leadership magazine for Christian leaders that you know some well-meaning person in our congregation subscribed to for me sent to me. And what I've learned over the years, sometimes, you know, when I get a subscription in the mail, someone's telling me what I need to do in the church. And so this particular magazine, I think, had this kind of title that particular month, How to Grow Your Church to 10,000 Through These 10 Easy Steps in Just 10 Months. Something like that. And I tell you that when I in my state, I saw that magazine, and it had the same magnetic power. I said, that's what I need. If I just read that article and get these steps and go to work, and I can grow this church, and this church gets big, I'll be okay. And 
with its magnetic power there, I looked at it and I said, no, I've been there and I've done that. And that is not going to make me feel better about myself. And I put that magazine down and I said, Father, I don't want to go down either one of those two paths, but I need to find your love. I'm just going to go for a walk. And so I, I just got out of the house, and I just began a long walk, hoping that the Father would find me, that he would come and embrace me in this small moment of my life where I was so weak and vulnerable. And I can remember walking down the, you know, this, this street where we lived on this ridge and a little bit about myself. When I grew up, I was like an amateur ornithologist. At one time, I memorized, you know, like all the birds in the United States. And there were certain birds that I really liked. I liked birds of prey. See, most people like birds of prey. And so I was fascinated with them, and I memorized all the different kinds of birds of prey. And there was one that was, you know, not very common around where we lived, but I, I really liked it. It was called an osprey, a sea eagle. And this is one of my favorite birds, but they, you hardly ever see them where, where I live. And I was walking down, this, down, down the road and saying, Father, find me. And I'm looking up into heaven, you know, you got to find me. And the next thing you know, I see this osprey. I mean, just fly right across my path, you know, about as high as the ceiling of this building. It was so rare. And it was my favorite bird. And it came, and all of a sudden I saw that and realized the sovereignty of that, the divine moment, and how I love seeing that bird. And God the Father knew that particular little thing about me. He had sent that bird to cross my path. It was one way he could say to me, Eddie... I love you. And it registered to me just like that. And I remember I stopped. I saw that, that bird. I looked up. You know, and the moment I did, I felt the Holy Spirit come on me right in the middle of the street. You know, just like when Jesus was baptized, I, I, I had learned that principle. The Spirit came on me. I felt the Spirit. I stopped. I put my hands up. And the Father's love just flooded me right in the middle of the street. I'm standing out there with, you know, you know, cars going by, tears flowing down my, my eyes, and realized that the Father had found me in the middle of the street in that vulnerable moment of my life, and he had done that. Right there and then. And now I realized is that that's where I want to stay, in the Father's embrace in my life. And the story of the prodigal son is all about staying in that embrace. And it's all about if we don't stay in that embrace, where do we go? Do we pick up the Victoria's Secret or do we pick up the Leadership Magazine? Do we go down one of the two paths that we see pictured in the parable of the prodigal son? So let's open up to uh, Luke chapter 15. We want to spend a little time in that. And also uh, our syllabus. And I first of all want to look at what I would call the movement 
of the fatherless that we see in the story of the parable of the prodigal son. It begins in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. And we need to stop at that point because that sort of paints the picture of the chief characters in the story. There is a man, and he is a loving father. And he becomes a picture of God the Father. Then there are two sons that this story describes. One is the well-known younger son, the prodigal son. And in the story, we see that he is with the father, but then he, he takes the father's inheritance and he, he goes out and he spends it and he ends up far away from the father. And then we meet the other brother in the story, the older brother. When we first meet him, he is also far from the father. He's out in the field working for his father's affirmation. And so, in this story, we see a father who is loving, and we see the younger son who's with his father, but then leaves his father's love and ends up in a fatherless place. Then he returns. But then we also meet the older brother, who is the, the son who's out there working in the field, who we never really see come back into the father's love. But we see a picture of movement when we take a look at these two sons, when we, when we meet them in their position of being fatherless. Because when they are away from the father, outside of his house, not in his love, they're in a fatherless position. And this is the position we can move towards, one of those two, if we do not know the father's love and how to stay in the father's love. These two sons, in the position of being fatherless, demonstrate two different kinds of fatherless living. It's like the younger son, when he leaves the father, chooses the Victoria's Secret. And he lives a life that we could call an addictive lifestyle, addicted to sensual things. The other son, the older son, when he leaves the father's presence and he goes out in the field to work for the father's love, he portrays a more a lifestyle of aggressively striving to try to earn the father's love. There are two different lifestyles that come from not knowing the father's love. Now, this movement that we see in this story a movement when you move away from the father and get in a fatherless position. That movement can be seen in, in many different ways uh, on different scales today. We can see this movement towards either one of these two positions on a worldwide scale. When people do not know the love of the father through a relationship with Jesus Christ and they are lost, it's like in the world, they move in one of two directions. There are those in the world, without Christ, without knowing the Father's love, who move into the addictive lifestyles that we see in the world today. Obvious sin. 
just going for it. You know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. And then it's like the other half of the world that doesn't choose that move out into a place of striving through religious effort in order to get God's approval. And this is the basis of major world religions. To get God's love and approval through religious works. Now, this movement can also be seen in the Christian church. A person can be a Christian and in the church and not have experienced the Father's love. The result is that they still may have core fatherlessness in their life, that emptiness from not receiving love from their father. So you see, they have, still have core issues. They may have met Jesus, they may even know the power of the Holy Spirit, but that they haven't met the Father to fill that core emptiness. So people can come in out of the world and be changed, but not have the core satisfied with the Father's love. The result is that they can still have a problem in being tempted to move into these two directions. And so Christians can struggle in moving towards an addictive lifestyle, struggle with addictions, because they haven't found the Father's love in their life yet. And sometimes those aren't so publicly, you know, obvious. They're more subtle because they can struggle with these sins in secret. And, you know, one of the interesting things is Philip Yancey in his book, What is So, you know, Great About Grace, you know, makes the statement that statistically the people, you know, the percentages of people who struggle with, you know, uh, addictions of various kinds, the, the numbers that have to do with divorce and other problems like that, statistically are not much different in the church than they are in the secular culture. And that tells us something that, this movement can be in, in the church. That people, because they, they don't have the, the core satisfied with the Father's love, would find themselves moving towards one of these two things. And if it's not an addictive lifestyle, it may be out of insecurity, having to be in a performance mode as a Christian, you know, striving to try to get God to love them. And finally, this can be seen, this movement can be seen in our own souls. Like I shared with you in my little story, that was, that was a movement in my own soul. I, I knew the Father's love, but in that moment of vulnerability, because of all the circumstances, the way they lined up, and you know how life is like that? Life can be like that. Circumstances can happen. Your health can change, your finances can change, your relationships can change, and all of a sudden you are vulnerable. And you're looking at the very core security in your life. And in that, in that moment, you can see in your own soul that there, there's, a, there's a, a tendency towards a movement, either to move towards something that will satisfy personified, like in you know, the Victoria's Secret route, is something wants to move that way, or wants to move in picking up the magazine that will help you perform better. And I can see that just through the course of one day, I'm having to, I have to keep myself centered in that place. Just the way life is. It, you, it wants to move you around 
out of that center of knowing the Father's love. And I think that this is why coming to experience the Father's love in our life, coming to understand all about it, learning how to stay centered in it is so important that we can stay centered in love because constantly circumstances come and we're tempted to go down one of those two routes. And it may be a, in an obvious way or it may be in a very subtle way. But we have to, to know the movements that are taking place so that we can come and stay centered in love. Henry Nouwen describes it this way. He says, in the parable of the prodigal son, there are two sons. The younger son who runs away from home to an alien country and the older son who stays home to do his duty. The younger son dissipates himself with alcohol and sex. The older son alienates himself by working hard and dutifully fulfilling all his obligations. Both are lost. Their father grieves over both because with neither of them does he experience the intimacy he desires. Both lust and cold obedience can prevent us from being true children of God. Whether we are like the younger son or the older son, we have to come home to the place where we can rest in the embrace of God's unconditional love. And that's what this picture portrays, the place where we can find rest and find the love that we're really looking for. I'd like to take a look at our second point in the, the syllabus and look with a little more detail at the movement towards addictive living that we see in the younger son. And that is described in verses 11 through 16. It said, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And this is a wonderful picture of the movement towards addictive living. And at the beginning of the movement is when he distances himself from his father, who was very loving. A lack of a father's love creates what I would call a void of affection. The further he is away from the father, the more he has a void in him for the affection of his father. And when a person has not received a father's love, especially in their childhood, they have a void in them that's crying out for affection, crying out for demonstrated natural affection, both in a, a little boy and a little girl. And if that void is not filled properly by love, it leads to the second part of the movement, and that is looking for this love that leads to some form of addiction. When we have that void in us, it, it's crying out for love, and we don't find it in the right place, we will look for love in the wrong place. 
through some form of addiction. Now let's sort of broaden the term of addiction. And Henry Nouwen describes this so well in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. He says, addiction might be the best word to explain the lostness that so deeply permeates our contemporary society. Our addictions make us cling to what the world proclaims as the keys to self-fulfillment or feeling better about ourselves, such as accumulation of wealth and power. You can be addicted to material things. Attainment of status and admiration. Lavish consumption of food and drink. And we hear that all the time, food addictions and uh, alcoholic or drug addictions. And sexual gratification without distinguishing between lust and love. These addictions create expectations that cannot but fail to satisfy our deepest needs. See, I, I need to understand as a man that without the Father's love securing the core of my being, I can be tempted to, to try to find one of these things in order to give me the self-fulfillment I want. And the world is constantly trying to sell us that, feed our addictions. And you and I live in that world. And so we need to understand what would make us move towards those things, what those things are. And we see that in his life, you know, he was addicted to, uh, you know, spending his money on prostitutes or on immorality. And immorality is one of the major problems that a person can have when they're looking for love in the wrong place. I believe that sexual immorality, at its core, is a false affection. We are looking for the warm, affectionate touch that would come from our fathers, that intimacy, that, that warmth, that feeling. And that's what sexual immorality offers in a false way a false intimacy, a false warm rush of feeling that meets that need. Whether it's just in a lustful look that begins to sort of move your emotions, move your body, and gives you a feeling, all the way to, you know, if it's you know, promiscuity or adultery or something, it's all looking to feel, feed that need for affection. And I think that's an important thing to understand because in our lives, when we try to, to live a moral life, it is important to realize that we have to deal with the flesh. And we have to discipline ourselves through the Word of God. But if we have that core emptiness, that's, that continually is crying out and often overwhelms even our best discipline. So it's so, it's so important to understand that what I need is is that true love filling the core of my being? And I need the disciplines of life in order to live a moral life. Because the path towards addiction that we see in the, the younger son ends up in emptiness. Longing, emptiness, and compounded, compounded pain are always the results of addiction. And we see that in his life, and that's what happens, and we learn that by our own experience. When I became a Christian, things radically changed in my life. I think 
Before I became a Christian, I was the younger son. I had a, a core emptiness, a void, crying out for affection because of the emptiness with my, with my father. And as a result, living the, San, the Southern California lifestyle, I found myself really addicted to these things, literally sex, drugs, rock and roll. But when I became a Christian, it, my life was so radically changed. And as far as having a serious problem with those things, it, it really ended right there and then. And I think I had the normal temptations after that, but I've never really had a serious problem. But I realized that when I became a Christian, you know, it, and I found Jesus, for a moment there, I was so filled with, with God's love and God's spirit. But I didn't find the Father. Uh, no one told me about the Father, and so that core emptiness was not filled permanently. And so what I did was, having been the younger son, came into the house, didn't find the Father, and in my insecurity, I went right through the back door and out in the field and began to work to, find a, to try to get him to love me. And so for most of my Christian life, I found myself identifying more with the older brother struggling with what he struggled with. And so let's take a look at his uh, picture that we find in the Bible. And this is a movement towards what I would call aggressive striving, attempting to earn love. And as the story continues, we know the prodigal comes back and finds the father's love. And we're going to talk about that at the end. And they have the big party. And that's when we're introduced to the older brother. And we have to remember that this parable was written for the older brother. Jesus gave this parable specifically to the Pharisees. Uh, so it's really primarily to address these tendencies. And these are tendencies that sometimes we find ourselves struggling with. And so we meet him in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. Now, that's not bad. He's out there working. And, and it's good to do God's work. But it's not good if you do God's work for the wrong reasons, you know, personally. So it says, it says meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And at that point, you know, normally we would think that the brother would rejoice. That would be normal. Hey, my brother's lost, was lost, now he's back. Great, cool, you know. Dad must be happy and let's go hang out. But that's, that would have been the normal response. And that was the response that Jesus wanted the Pharisees to have for all of the, you know, the tax collectors and harlots and all of those sinful people that were coming to him. But let's look at his attitude. And this is the attitude he had in his work. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And why was he angry? He says, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, 
all these years I've been slaving for you. And this is the same loving father that we see portrayed. He hasn't changed. But this son didn't understand the love of his father, and he felt he had to work as a slave in order to get his father's affirmation. Look, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, and I love it in the Greek, it is agapetos, my beloved son. The father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we, have, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And what is the movement that we sort of see in this picture that we can learn from? Distance from a father's love produces core insecurity. And this goes back again to our childhood. If we were distanced from our, distanced from our father and didn't receive his blessing, his unconditional love, that produces core insecurity in us. And if we carry that into our Christianity, we have a core insecurity that will cause us to believe that we have to work to get God the Father to love us. And that is the very core issue that can, that can cause us to strive in order to get God's approval. The result is feeling driven to prove oneself worthy of love leads to performing for love. We can feel driven to perform in order to prove that we're worthy of love. Once again, Henry Nouwen writes, as insecure, anxious, vulnerable, and mortal beings always involve somehow and somewhere in the struggle for survival, competition seems to offer us a great deal of satisfaction. We find ourselves being coming a competitor for love. And you see, this older brother was in competition with his younger brother for his father's love. If we're insecure, it often leads to competing for love. Performance orientation leads to a negative competitiveness in life. Aggressive striving can lead to religious self-righteousness like it did in the Pharisees. And striving can lead to fatigue, frustration, and despair. I know that. Ten years into it, not knowing the Father's love, sincerely serving Jesus, I found myself in a place of fatigue, frustration, and despair because at the core, I was striving, trying to earn my Father's love. Defensiveness is the natural result of negative competition. We see that he's defensive about his performance and angry about what has happened with his younger brother. Angry reactions to other people can reveal competitiveness. And I'm just speaking from my own heart. Whenever, See, there's two things that can make you angry. One thing is when you've been hurt especially collectively over the years. But another thing that can make us angry is when others are winning, when we're competing. When I get angry about something happening to someone else, 
I take a look at myself. Maybe sometimes I get angry about what somebody does. That uh, just as a pastor, I remember years ago, I could find myself getting angry if people fail to do things right in the church. Why? Because they needed to perform well, because it was all part of my performance for my success. And my being on edge was just indicating my insecurity. See, insecurity that produces striving always puts an edge on us. That little, that little hard edge that, that demands the same performance of other people that we've put upon ourselves. There are other symptoms that sometimes we see that warn us that we're, we're sort of on the wrong track. One is jealousy. You know, if I hear, do you know so-and-so had this many people at their conference? And I feel jealousy. What does that tell me about my heart? I'm in competition. Why? I, I'm insecure again, doggone it. <laughs> I've forgotten. I've forgotten. I have to get back into the center. Criticism is the same thing. Competition usually reacts to compassion being shown to others, and that's what we see in the story. Because they get something for free that we're working for. Now, you know, when you're in the place of the younger brother, you know, when you're in the addictive place and all of a sudden you realize, I'm in trouble, I have a drinking problem, and it's causing me lots of difficulty, or doggone it, I should not have, I shouldn't be watching this on the Internet. And all of a sudden you're guilt-ridden and you know I'm on the wrong path. Then you know, oh God, I need to go back. I need to find the Father. But it's much harder when you're in this striving position, especially if you're good at it. It's hard to realize you're in this place. Some, you may see some of these little warning lights on the dashboard, and that helps you realize I'm in... I am in a place of fatigue, frustration, anger, criticism, jealousy, whatever, competition. I need to get back. And that's harder to get in touch with. And the beauty about that is in the story, we see the determination is seen by the father pleading with the older son to come home. Do you notice that in the story? See, the younger son realizes where he's at, and he comes back the older son doesn't realize where he's at. And the father goes out to him, and he pleads with him. And notice how, how unkind the, the elder son is to his dad. He, he sort of says, look! <laughs> you know, and, and really gets in his face. But the father doesn't stop loving him. He comes and he pleads with him. He comes out to him and says, I love you. Will you please come in? And that's exactly what the Father does for us when we get in that position. And I love that. It's so merciful. The Father is determined for us to come into the house and experience that embrace. If we're out there working too hard for the wrong reason. The Father brings a loving invitation to striving sons. The Father will bring loving intervention if necessary. And you know, that's what happens a lot. The Father just comes and pulls the rug out from underneath our best performance. And we fall flat in our face. And we can't do anything. And then he finds us. He comes and he slips his arms over us, and there we are. 
and we feel him loving us right there when we can't do anything. And that's a wonderful feeling. Then we really understand. He loves me for who I am, not for what I do. We get to rest in that. And what we receive in that position is, is the love that he gives us to give away freely. And so we either get in touch with it or the Father helps us get in touch with it whenever we've gone out too far on one of those roads. And then in either place, we have to begin what I would call the movement to the Father's love that we see in the story. So we see in the younger son the movement to the Father's love. And this is the movement that we all take in order to come into that embrace. This is the movement of returning to the Father in our life. And I'd like to begin in uh, verse 17. As we look at this movement, once again, the prodigal who is, you know, uh, in the pigsty and realizes his problem. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. This is the first part of the movement back to the Father's love. Recognizing our need to return to the Father. That's what we have to get in touch with. There he is, and he comes to his senses. And when he comes to his senses, he remembers his Father. How good his father was even to the servants. How loving his father was even to him. How loving his father was to him that he loved him so much that he gave him his inheritance ahead of time and loved him so much to set him free to risk it all, to see if he would return and love him. He remembered how much his father loved him. He came to his senses. And that is what moved him to go back to his father. All of a sudden, he realized what he was really looking for. I'm looking for love. And that love is to be found with my Father. And this is the way it works for us. We come to our senses concerning the nature of the Father with the help of the Spirit. We see the true loving nature of the Father. We see our core need for the love of the Father. You see, the first step in moving back is coming to our senses. And all of a sudden, realizing God is my Father. He loves me. And I have this need for, to receive his love. When we begin to understand that, we're coming to our senses. And the Spirit helps us do that. And that is what the Spirit is doing right now. That's what the Spirit's doing in this conference. That's what the Spirit's doing in our life. He's helping us come to our senses about who God is. Uh, to realize we have a Father who loves us, that our real need is for his love. You know, know, I believe that coming to our senses is coming to sanity. Because when we come to our senses and come to love, and love fills us, that's when we are truly sane people. (laughs) Because when we are not filled with love, 
And the, the pain of our emptiness, our loneliness, our fears, our guilt, our shame, whatever those emotions are, and they are strong and real. When they come up in our life and they're un unchecked by love, it's literally like they rise up to our mind and they overrule our thinking and we're temporarily insane. That was insanity for what this son did. You know, if when I had that Victoria's Secret magazine in my hand, to open it up because of my insecurities, you know, and needs that were welling up, that would have been temporary insanity to do that. Because I know where, I know where it would lead. It would be, all, it's, it would be insane. But I've, I've come to realize that the negative emotions in our life will cause us to be temporarily insane in what we choose to do. But when we are filled with God's love, we begin to make our decisions out of that. We are truly sane people. <laughs> we make right decisions. And the Spirit of God comes to bring us to our senses. And I think that that's part of what is happening in the church. The Spirit of God is coming to bring the church to its senses about who God the Father is and about his love and that you can experience it and it's what we need. And that's part of the movement in our life. And the moment that happens, we have what I would call a paradigm shift. And all of a sudden, we realize we need that. We need to live in that embrace. And once we get that, we are in our senses. And that's where we'll continue to return in life. Long after this conference, you know, you'll, you'll come to your senses and realize in your own little journey in life, your own little moments and stories, ah, I remember. Right now, I, I understand how I'm feeling now, but I remember I have a father who loves me, and I can go there and take my insecure life and put it under his embrace and be filled with his love. That, I'm going to try to get there. Coming to his senses leads to the next verse. Verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Once he recognizes his need for the Father's love, he realizes that he's in the wrong place. Repentance marks our returning home to the Father. He repents. He, he says, I'm going to get out of this pigsty. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to go back to my Father. That's repentance. To realize you're in the wrong place and you want to go home to the right place. I call this good repentance. This is good repentance. He, he changes his mind. He gets up out of that, and he changes his feet. And he goes home, and he leaves it behind. That's good repentance. It's, 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 it's not, you know, shallow repentance. And good repentance is motivated and culminated by the Father's love. What motivates him to really repent is that he wants to be back in the Father's love. And once he repents and he goes back home, we'll see in a moment, and the Father embraces him in love, that culminates his repentance. And it's like the bookends of repentance. Love, love is the best motivation to change. And love is the best culmination for changing. If you take love 
off either end, like fear alone being the motivation for repentance, and you, f you change and then you return, and you do not find the love you're looking for in, in experience, and you're empty. And this Father's love is so critical in making repentance functional in our life. Because without the Father's love, repentance can turn into repetitious religious acts with no change. But love changes everything. You know, repentance is simply a choice to stay in love. In my life now, my reason to repent is not to perform in front of anybody or for anybody, to try to live some kind of life for somebody else's sake. The, the reason is I want to stay in love. I want to stay there. I want to stay there. And as I'm going to share with you in a moment, there, there's only two places to be. One is in the place of the prodigal receiving that love. And the only other place is to be in the place of the Father giving that love away. There's no other place to be. Anything else we need to turn from and come back to receiving love and giving it away. And these other things, you know, if I'm off there in an addictive thing or an aggressive striving thing, neither one give me love and neither one are loving. And so he repents, and he goes back to the Father. And then we see one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, the picture of what happens when he returns. So he got up, he went to his Father. But while he was still a long way off, his Father saw him. His Father never stopped looking for him. And when his father saw him, he says, and was filled with compassion for him. Wasn't angry with him. He was filled with compassion for him. And that word in the Greek means he, he felt from the very depth of his being mercy and love and affection the moment he saw his, his son returning. He felt his son's suffering and was so glad to have him back. It says he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And we see this beautiful picture of the younger son receiving the father's love as he comes home. One of the most beautiful pictures of the father's love in the Bible is this prodigal in the embrace of his father. And that is what is captured so poignantly in Rembrandt's painting, in this image. The essential movement of the Father toward us is seen here in this picture. And I love this term. This is the essential movement of God the Father towards us. All the time, doesn't change. What we see in the, in the Scripture describes the essential movement. This is the way God the Father is always moving towards you and I at every moment in our life. The Father has always loved us. Like Michael was saying, 
He loved us before creation. We were in his heart, and he loved us before the foundation of time. He knew you. He knew your name. And from that moment, if you can call it a moment, he has always loved you. He has, he has always had deep affection for you, for me, for you. And he's been moving towards your life from eternity past. He never takes his eyes off of you. He is always watching you, just like he was always going out and watching for his son. In, in, in some ways, you say, that's, I don't know if that's good news or what. He's always watching me. What happens when I'm, I'm not doing so well? He's watching me, but is that bad news? It says here that when his prodigal son returns, having blown it just as bad as you can blow it, said he was filled with compassion. You know, his heart is filled with compassion for us when he hurts. When we hurt, he suffers with us. Your Father in heaven is always watching you. He is always in love with you. And when you suffer, either through your own sin or sin against you, he suffers with you. He cries for you. He, he is coming to love you because he knows that, that is what you really need. And he quickly moves towards us in love. I love this. He runs to his son. And you know, that, that is an that is actual truth. You know, every time we have a ministry time and we say, Father, come. Holy Spirit, come. Father, come and love us. How long does it take for his presence to rest upon you? That fast. Every time you, you turn your face towards him, he's there. See, he is literally always moving towards you. He's moving towards you and I right now. He's, his love is moving towards you. It's from eternity past, he's moving towards you. And that's such a wonderful thing to know. At every moment, wherever I'm at, I can just lift my face up and realize he comes to me. He comes to me in the midst of my failures to love me. And, 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 and plead with me to come to him. He comes to me in my moments of insecurity and weakness. And he comes and he knows I'm weak. He knows I'm vulnerable. And the, the times when I'm in that position, he always comes so quickly. And it doesn't make any difference where I'm at. This is the essential movement of the Father towards us. And when he comes, like in the picture, we get to experience his love. It's the central focus of this story. See, he felt the warm embrace of his father's arms thrown around him. He felt the intimacy of that kiss. He could feel his, his father's heartbeat. And that's what happens. We feel it. And like I said, we hear it. And he says, he speaks to us, I love you, in so many different ways. I think one of the ways the Father says, I love you, most commonly, he just tells you something about yourself that only he knows. He says the thing that needed to be said at that very moment in your life that all of a sudden tells you he knows and he loves me. Now it's so nice for him to say that to me right now. And that word touches your heart. 
his arms, his voice touches you, and all of a sudden you feel the embrace and your emotions are moved and sometimes you, you, know, you cry tears of your pain, you, you cry tears of your failures. That's been such a mystery to me. The times when I've just made a mistake presumptuously and I turn, I turn to him and he comes and loves me. And I cry tears of how much you love me even in what I did presumptively. And it breaks my heart. And I feel his love and fall in love with him all over again. You know, I like what Ron Ryder says about Henry Nouwen when he first saw this painting that was hanging in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. He said, for several days, he, Henry Nouwen, set before the massive painting and reflected upon it. As he viewed the painting, Henry sensed an invitation to join in the drama in a spiritual way. I love that. He says, I can join in the drama of that in a spiritual way. He saw the compassionate father holding the wandering son close to his heart and knew the truest home is found in that divine embrace. There the wandering soul can hear the guiding heartbeat born of eternal love. That is the painting of this story. That's what we enter into when we, we come to the Father. When we come off one of those two paths, that's what we find. That's what we're looking for. Every moment of our life. Jesus knew that. He'd get up early in the morning to be in that embrace. I don't think Jesus was ever an embrace length away from his dad. <laughs> he was always in his father's embrace. And then always giving away his father's love. And you know, I love what flows out of this once he experiences this love. You know, in verse 22, it says, but the father, you know, he, he, he repents and then it says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring their best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and let's have this celebration. And there's, there's, there's just some important things to understand there. Reidentification takes place with the father's love. He experiences the father's love, and then there's a reidentification that takes place in his life. And you know, the father's love reidentifies us. The experience of it, that embrace that we experience, reidentifies our life properly. Love identifies us as sons and daughters. When the father puts the robe on him, he's identified. No longer is, is you know, the wandering prodigal in his, his old clothes of sin. He now has the robe from his father, and he's identified as a son. And I believe that when we experience the father's love, one of the first benefits is that we are identified as sons and daughters. And that's our primary identity in life, more than anything else. More than husband, wife, 
father, mother, pastor, you know, lawyer, educator, whatever. Our primary identity in life, and love gives it to us, is that you're a son and a daughter. And you know, when you get that right, everything falls into place. Love also gives us true authority. He gets the ring of authority. And in ministry, the only true source of authority is love. He receives sandals. Love sends us where we are to go. When we are filled with love, it sends us where we are to go. It identifies our ministry. Love sends us out to become the people we're to be in the kingdom of God. Nothing does it like love. Some of you have probably heard of Heidi Baker and her ministry in Mozambique who labored as a missionary in Mozambique with no fruit for many years. She went to a conference, was on the floor soaking, as Michael said, for seven days, soaking in the love of God. It sent her to Mozambique filled with this incredible overflowing love of God the Father. That was several years ago, and now they planted 8,000 churches. It's probably one of the greatest you know, movements of God ever seen in church history. There's something about receiving love that sends us. Man, I look at my own life. You know, just a, <laughs> Jan and I were just a couple surf people from San Clemente. Our, my world was no bigger than the next wave. And love, love found me. And the more love finds me, the more it sends me. And that's, a, I, that's just a wonderful thing because I believe that's part of the, the heritage of this church. There's a deposit of love in this church and a growing deposit of this in this church that's going to send this church. And, and make this church everything that God wants it to be. And that brings us to this, this final point that flows out of this. The movement that takes place once we've received this love. The movement towards spiritual fathering and mothering. There is a biblical imperative to move towards demonstrating the Father's love to others, that love that we've received. Once again, from Henry Nouwen, perhaps the most radical statement Jesus ever made is, be compassionate as your Father is compassionate. In other words, be as loving as comp and compassionate to others as your Father has been loving and compassionate to you. He goes on to say, What I am called to make true is that whether I am the younger or elder son, uh, elder son, I am the son of my compassionate Father. I am an heir. Indeed, as son and heir, I am to become successor. 
I am destined to step into my Father's place and offer to others the same compassion that he has offered me. The return to the Father is ultimately the challenge to become the Father. There is an inherent progression from receiving the Father's love to giving it away that, we, that is in this picture. What now and realized is that we start by being the prodigal receiving the love. But then there's a movement that begins in us to where we become like the Father in the picture, like God the Father giving that love away to others. There is an inherent progression to becoming a spiritual father and mother offering to others both the masculine and feminine dimension of the Father's love. One of the things that was, is pointed out about this painting is that when Rembrandt painted it, the hands are different. One hand that is uh, on my left here is larger and it's masculine. The one on the other side is much smaller and much more feminine. And that was by design. Uh, art, art critics have talked about that. The masculinity and the femininity in the hands of the Father. And this is such a, a beautiful picture to realize that God the Father, when he touches us with his embrace, releases both, like I was talking about the other, the masculine love of a father and the feminine love of a mother. The father's love has both dimensions in it. And when we receive that love, then there's an inherent progression to where we begin to give that love of the father away. And those of us who are men give it away in the role as spiritual fathers. And we have an emphasis on the masculine. But women who receive it become spiritual mothers in the church, giving the father's tender love to others in a feminine way. And so we are called to receive this love. And then as it moves through us, we will find ourselves taking the position of being spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers, giving this love away to all the prodigals that come to us. And I love the way Henry Nouwen puts this. He said, when four years ago I went to St. Petersburg to see Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal Son, I had little idea how much I would have to live what I then saw. I stand with awe at the place where Rembrandt brought me. He led me from the kneeling, disheveled young son to the standing, bent-over old father, from the place of being blessed to the place of blessing. And he says, as I look at my own aging hands, I know that they have been given to me to stretch out towards all who suffer to rest upon the shoulders of all who come and to offer the blessing that emerges from the immensity of God's love. What a beautiful picture. 
I look at my hands and realize that these aging hands have one purpose, and that's to, to lay them on every person that I have an opportunity to that somehow God's love would throw, flow through them to those people that I touch. And it's because God has put his hand on me and blessed me with his hands. And now I realize that my hands have been given to me to impart that blessing out of the immensity of his love to other people. And I have one little story. Last February, the beginning of the month, I went to Brazil. And it was the southernmost part of Brazil, and I was going to teach at a leadership school. And, you know, it took me 26 hours to get there. And then I was put up in this little old, I would call, second world hotel with a little box of a room. And it was about 80 degrees in the middle of the night, about 80% humidity. And dogs and cats and everything howling. And, and I'm not a good traveler. And I was miserable. I was jet-lagged out. I had everything, everything that would be going wrong. And I knew that I was going to have to turn that air conditioner on in order to survive the night. And in that little tiny room, there was this big, giant air conditioner, you know, and I turned it on, and when it w went on, it just shook the whole room. And it was, it was like having an airplane in your room. There was no way I was going to sleep through the night, you know. And I said, this, I'm in trouble. You know, I'm, and there I am in this. And the next morning, I was going to have to speak to 9 o'clock the next morning to all these, you know, leaders from Brazil. And I'm going, oh, I hate this. Because I'm moving right into weakness. And, and I don't know how how I'll ever be able to have anything to say. And so I was in this desperate place of weakness again. And so I got on the phone and I called my wife, who's like 12,000 miles away. And I said, you need to pray for me. <laughs> it's 2 in the morning. 9 o'clock is the meeting. I'm in trouble. And she says, okay, I'll pray. The moment she begins to pray, she says, I have a vision. And I see the Father extending his hand to you, putting it on your head. And she prays, Father, put your, your loving hand on Eddie's head, 12,000 miles away. And as she prays that, all of a sudden, I feel this hand on my head. And I feel this presence come on me, this wonderful, loving embrace. And I'm familiar with that picture, and I know that it is happening right there in that room. And that the love of the Father comes in my fearful, anxious <laughs> position, flows through me. I just began to cry. And I just wept myself to sleep. I didn't know what I was going to say. And I went to that meeting the next day and said, I don't have anything to say. But I want to tell you what happened to me last night. And I told them my little story. 
And I said, what happened to me last night? The father put his hands on me. And I had this picture up there. And that's where I was last night. And now I think that these hands are meant to give that to you. Does anybody want that? Shoot, they all lined up. And I just began to stand there. <laughs> you know, oh, that guy almost fell off the stage, excuse me. But each one of those men and women came up, and I just put my hand on their shoulder, and what happened to me that night happened to them. And that wonderful love of the Father that I had just found in a moment of desperation just last February <laughs> flowed into their lives. And I'll tell you, from that moment on, every one of those meetings was, you know, incredible. It was just as simple as that. And I realized that what happened to me can happen to them. What happens to us is what we give away. And that's why we're here, to receive it and then let it flow through us and give it away to one more person. You know, that's my definition of success. To receive it and give it away to one more person. You know, I just read something Mother Teresa wrote. The success of love is not in the results. It's in the loving. And when we receive this love, we realize that's all it's about now. If I can receive this love, this one little person, then I'm just going to give it away to one more person. And I tell you, that is what God multiplies.